Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Wyatt. In January, Pakistan's parliament passed through tough new blasphemy laws, already boasting some of the strictest prohibitions in the world, which include the death penalty for those convicted of insulting the Prophet Muhammad. The new laws extend protections to the Prophet's wives and close companions, creating new offences with penalties reaching all the way up to life in prison. Pakistan's increasingly harsh blasphemy legislation is a disaster for religious minorities in the country, especially Christians, who are frequently targeted by malicious accusations of blasphemy. This can incite mobs who enact swift extrajudicial punishment, sometimes killing their victims. Others accused of blasphemy have languished for years on death row, including the infamous case of Christian woman Asia Bibi. There have even been high-profile government ministers assassinated by their own bodyguards, for daring to question Pakistan's blasphemy taboos. To explore the fate of the persecuted church in Pakistan and to discuss how Christians can support their brothers and sisters besieged by blasphemy laws, this week I'm joined by Simon, a South Asia expert from Christian Solidarity Worldwide, and Michael Nazir Ali, a British Pakistani former Anglican bishop and now Catholic priest. Well, hello, and thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, really pleased to have two excellent guests on on the show today. Um, could we start by asking you guys both to introduce yourselves for those who haven't come across you? Um, Monsignor Michael, why don't you go first? Yes, my name is Michael Nazir Ali. Um, I worked in Pakistan and in Britain and some other parts of the world. Um, and um, I was Bishop of Rywind in Pakistan and then Bishop of Rochester for many years in this country. And I now teach uh, mainly in Oxford and also in Rome. Fantastic. And Simon, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Simon and I'm uh, working with CSW, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, as the South Asia Deputy Team Leader, uh, focusing on Pakistan amongst other countries in the region. Excellent. Well, the, the kind of instigating factor for, for recording a podcast on this was um, the news uh, from a, a few months ago that um, uh, the, the parliament in Pakistan had, had strengthened its um, existing blasphemy laws. Um, could you brief, one of you briefly explain exactly why this is of particular concern to Christians and, and, and how in the past have uh, Pakistan's blasphemy laws been, been used to, to target and persecute Christians? Um, Simon, why didn't you go first? Sure. Uh, well, uh, from the data that we have uh, been uh, documenting and our partners in Pakistan have been documenting for the past over 35 years, uh, the blasphemy laws, uh, from the time that the blasphemy laws were strengthened in 1984, uh, from 1987 to date, we have seen an alarming increase in the number of blasphemy cases and blasphemy accusations that have been taking place. Um, to give you an example, uh, from as as we have seen through data from the start of Pakistan since 1947, right up till 1984, there were approximately 25 uh, cases of blasphemy that took place. But after the strengthening of these laws in uh, back in the 1980s, we have uh, our partners have recorded 
1,939 cases of blasphemy, right, from 1987 up till 2021. And um, um, 48% of those cases are against the religious minority communities, which includes, in order of the uh, number of cases, is the Ahmadiyya community on the top, followed by the Christian community, and then the Hindu community and the Sikhs. Uh, uh, this is how the cases are. And just in the year 2021, uh, we, uh, our partners recorded a total of 84 cases of, of blasphemy that took place. And in the past decade, we have seen uh, and witnessed this, con this phenomena of mob violence and mob-based um, um, targeting where people have taken the law into their own hands falsely accused someone of blasphemy and then uh, taken the law into their own hands and uh, and lynched them. And that is something very concerning that we've noticed in this past decade. I'm seeing you, Michael, when, when you've been in Pakistan, is this something that is an active concern for the Christian community there? Do Christians kind of live in fear that they might be targeted by a, a kind of false blasphemy accusation? Yes, I mean, I think it's a kind of dead hand on... Um the Christian community and other communities, as uh, we've just heard. Um, it's, a, it's a law that um, militates against freedom of speech, for instance. Uh, and of course, many Muslims have also been implicated in it, uh, very often falsely, mostly falsely. Uh, it is misused in all sorts of ways uh, to extract um, vengeance on people, uh, for some perceived wrong or um, to put them at a disadvantage in a dispute about land, uh, for instance, or some other reason. So, um, uh, and again, um, this whole issue of uh, extrajudicial action uh, where um, mobs take the law into their own hands and uh, murder not only people who may be suspected of blasphemy, but even law enforcers. I mean, even a judge has been killed. So uh, this is very widespread, and um, it has had a bad effect on relations between communities in Pakistan. When I was doing some some research, it, it seemed like while some of the blasphemy laws actually date back to the kind of colonial era under the British Raj, they were, as you mentioned, Simon, significantly updated in the 1980s. And that's been seen that it's since that in the last kind of 30 years that we've seen this real increase in numbers. Could you explain or do you, do you could you explain to us a bit why what was dri driving that case? Why is it in the last 30 or 40 years that that Pakistan has become kind of more intolerant of religious minorities? Yeah, the, under the British, I mean, by the way, India, as it then was, was never a colony. It was an empire. So, um, but the, the laws, uh, the British laws, uh, British origin laws, which, of course, remained in force uh, after partition, uh, were really laws against religious hatred. And they, uh, they were, I suppose, necessary at that time to prevent uh, violence between communities, uh, so very often um, the peace between them was fragile. But they prescribed um, very moderate punishments. I mean, they were, you know, um, that is why they were not used so often, um, even in the case of a conviction. What we have now is a draconian law 
that has uh, no room for flexibility for the judges uh, presiding over um, the um, the prosecution of a case, uh, the, the prescription of a mandatory death penalty, which was promulged uh, after the 80th, actually, it was uh, promulged as a result of a decision by a Sharia court that um, the penalty had to be a capital penalty. I think this is what has taken the whole thing into quite a different realm altogether. And Simon, could you explain a little bit about of the kind of the religious political context in Pakistan that might have been driving some of these changes and, and the kind of strengthening of of the of blasphemy laws in in recent decades? Well, I I I, uh, I would like to mention. I think you know in the eighties the the whole narrative of uh, Pakistan moving towards a majoritarian Muslim. Uh, state in the time that Pakistan was um, fighting um, a proxy war um, in Afghanistan against the USSR. And that narrative that was started to be built, um, of which, which got into our education system, we noticed and we started witnessing where uh, the education system, the policy, the curriculum, as well as the content in the textbooks started to get filled up with material that was uh, causing more division, that was creating more hate in society rather than bringing us together. And, um, you know, that seed that was sown in the 1980s has borne its unfortunate fruit now, 30, 40 years down the line. And that is why you see so much of um, further division, not just between the majority and the minority community, but within the majority Muslim community, within the different sects also, we see that division against the Shia community, against the uh, against the Hazaras, against the Ahmadiyya community. That is, it's, so there, there's no stopping to this phenomena if we don't stop to address the root causes that are that have uh, caused this problem. And the fact that we lost a sitting governor and a sitting federal minister for minority rights because they spoke up against the blasphemy laws is uh, evidence that uh, there is, as Monsignor Michael said, there is no space anymore to even discuss or to even demand a repeal of this of these laws anymore. Hmm. I mean, you mentioned those two um, shocking assassinations more than 10 years ago. That was um, Shabazz Bhatti and, and Salman Tazir. Um, Monsignor Michael, would you mind kind of just quickly explaining what happened in those terrible cases and what kind of impact those killings have had on, on the atmosphere in Pakistan? Well, yes. I mean, Shabazz Bhatti was a federal minister, as Simon has just said, and um, um, I had noticed actually visiting him that um, security around him was quite relaxed, let's put it like that. And um, the fact that he was uh, leaving, I think, his mother's house in a car that had no protection, um, and it was attacked, and um, he was killed because of his activism, quite widely and for a long time on all sorts of human rights issues, uh, including this one. Um, so um, uh, that, from the point of view of the Christian uh, community, uh, was a shocking uh, matter. Uh, Salman Tasir was killed because he'd visited Asya Bibi, who, uh, the Christian woman who'd been accused of blasphemy and had... Um, expressed sympathy for her situation and um, uh, questioned whether um, 
the um, the law as it was was simply a human contract, uh, and whether it was uh, not necessarily of divine origin, which is what is claimed of it. And for that, he was murdered by his own guard, his own security guard, who I think was it 37 times that uh, he shot him. Um, his son later on was kidnapped and held against his will for, I think, several years and eventually uh, um, was freed. Uh, he has published a book recently uh, about his experiences. So that that is what happened, yeah. And I suppose the fact, as you say, that that um, such senior figures, a federal minister and a governor, can be can be killed, um, I guess, demonstrates just how um, how deadly these kind of blasphemy allegations, or even, as you say, kind of getting entangled ta- tangentially in, in a blasphemy case, ca- can be. Are there any other political figures in Pakistan today who are kind of advocating for reform or or speaking up for minority rights, or is it just too dangerous to do that? No, I think there are people who are advocating reform, and um, I think reform uh, has to come from within the Islamic tradition itself, um, as it has in other countries. Um, I often say to people that from my childhood, I've been hearing my Muslim friends say that when the Prophet of Islam was insulted, he forgave those who insulted him. And I've also been told, and I know that uh, it is incumbent on all Muslims to follow his example in everything. So the question is, why not in this matter? Um, I think that's the kind of argument that will um, possibly um, hold sway and turn public opinion in a particular direction. Premier Christian Newscast. Christian Newscast. And Simon, I want to come to you on that question as well. I mean, do you um, have any great hope for for progress or reform in this area? Because it seems at the moment, actually, with the laws in January being kind of tightened and expanded, we're actually going in the wrong direction. Yes, uh, I, I believe that you know, there are still a lot of voices in, in Pakistan who are advocating, um, but we've got to be practical in the type of demands that we put forward. No, understanding the complexity of how this uh, mindset has evolved over the past four decades, um, we have to look for practical solutions. And that is why one of the demands that we also put forward is for procedural amendments within the blasphemy laws to be able to curb the misuse of the law. Number two, the most important part is the state has to enforce its writ and the rule of law. Uh, We cannot allow time and again uh, mobs to take uh, action and become the prosecutor and the judge and, you know, and and meet out such justice on the streets. So the state has to enforce its writ. And it is very important that the, uh, the constitutional obligations that Pakistan has have got to be respected. The the, the 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 promise to protect its minorities has got to be upheld and um and and there are but i think there is a, a long-term uh, agenda that has to be followed and that is where we have to 
try to change the mindset within the country, change the mindset of the security forces, the judicial. I mean, the problem is that when there is a blasphemy accusation in the lower courts, a conviction is more certain because the lower courts, the judiciary does not have those level of protections. And so a judge has no choice but to pass that case onwards, convict and move forward so that he or she can save their own skin in that way. So there is, there is, we need to work on um, training of the police and security agencies who are the first point of contact when an accusation takes place. And then we need to provide those protections and sensitivity and sensitizing the lower courts, the lower judiciary, the police forces on realizing how they need to um, deal with such uh, situations and unless the state and civil society cannot do that alone civil society does not have the machinery to do that it is only the state that can do that and it is therefore uh, that responsibility falls on the state to ensure that they train include in their in their training manuals for the police as well as the judiciary on human rights uh, uh, mechanisms and human rights standards that need to be followed and upheld Pakistan is a, has ratified so many of the UN treaties and conventions. We have to also uh, um, comply with our international commitments, which is important. Monsignor Michael, did you want to come in on that as well? Yes, I think the procedural point is very important. Um, I think um, the police uh, who have the first contact when some kind of complaint is made, there have been instances of some enlightened police officers uh, not taking things forward and trying to bring about some kind of local communal agreement uh, and um, refusal to register the case. Because once the case is registered, then everything uh, carries on with its own logic. Uh, the other uh, thing about procedure is that once a case is registered, if it is registered, it must not it must be taken away from the local scene for the reasons that simon has just given um uh, it should be referred i mean in britain we have this uh, way of uh, the police referring cases to the crown prosecution service we need something like that in pakistan so that the decision to prosecute if there is a decision to prosecute should not be taken at the local level where people come under terrific pressure uh, from mobs and extremists of various kinds. Uh, that is uh, quite possible to do, and I've been commending that to successive governments in Pakistan. The other is that the local court situation, that again, um, and this has happened in one or two cases, and uh, I think it, it should happen more. I'm not generally in favor of um, special courts, but I think in this case, uh, there should be special courts sitting in protected uh, premises uh, where they're not, um, uh, as it were, um, susceptible to, uh, to, to the mobs and to extremists. Uh, and then, of course, whatever decision they make should be appealable in the higher courts as, as it is now. I think that would take, those sorts of things would take the sting out of uh, what is happening. But there is also the bilateral point. I mean, the United Kingdom, for instance, is um, uh, substantially involved in providing educational assistance in Pakistan. That's a very good thing. But if that assistance is going to producing textbooks of hate, 
then that's not such a good thing. So there is a bilateral element to this as well. And then, of course, as Simon has said, there is an international element. Uh, Pakistan is signatory um, to the UN um, Declaration on Human Rights. In fact, its foreign minister, Sir Zafarullah Khan, uh, was um, heavily involved in the drafting of the of the declaration, as was Charles Malik, the the Lebanese ambassador uh, to the UN at the time. Um, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. I mean, there are so many uh, of these international instruments to which the country is a signatory. And every country's human rights record is reviewed every five years by the United Nations. And so uh, we must make sure that uh, uh, asking um, Pakistan and every other country how human rights have been respected uh, in the previous five years in their domain, that that is possible and that is not taken to be a sign of disloyalty to the country or anything like that, but actually uh, it is a sign of, of commitment uh, to the country's future. Hmm. And one of the other things I was curious to find out about was what it was like for, for Pakistani Christians on the ground. Uh, are there ways that they've tried to adapt to the difficult situation they find themselves in? Are, have there... Are there ways in which they attempt to kind of defend, obviously kind of non-violently defend themselves against the, these, this kind of persecution? I think a mentality has been created. Uh, so people have withdrawn into their own communities. Uh, I mean, there was a time when uh, Muslims and Christians and Hindus and whoever there was, uh, Jews as there were at that time, uh, um, I, when I was in school, uh, we all uh, worked together, we played together, uh, we were friends together. Uh, but this uh, climate of suspicion and that has now been uh, produced for the reasons that Simon was mentioning has made Christian and other communities withdraw into themselves. And that is not good for national integration. Mm. Um so um, we need to uh, very urgently address this question of confidence, to give confidence to religious minorities about their future in the country. And Simon, same question to you, really. What do you see when you speak to, to local Pakistani Christians? How does this impact their kind of day-to-day -day practice on the ground? Well, with the advent of social media, it's become even made them even more vulnerable. And, um, you know, because a majority of the minority community are uh, marginalized and do not have that access to the right level of education also, I think it's really important that, um, you know, even the, the community itself and the church also needs to work uh, I think even harder in, in giving that, uh, you know, that clarity to the Christian community, uh, giving that encouragement and, and know how of how vulnerable they could be. And uh, Monsignor Michael rightly pointed out that, you know, they've gone inwards, they're living in a constant state of fear uh, because of the possibility of, of not even saying anything and being accused of blasphemy just because you may have a difference of opinion. And that has ghettoized society in Pakistan. And that does not help at all. 
uh, and what it what what you know we, when we speak to academics in in Pakistan, what we see is that this wave of radicalization with the majority Muslim community has had an effect on the minority community as well. So you know it's it's breaking down the social fabric of the entire country because now you have even members from the minority community who may want to use the very blasphemy laws that we are struggling to try and get uh, uh, removed because it has an effect. And and therefore, the struggle is really a long-term struggle. Um, you know, if we, like Monsignor Michael said, in the bilateral side, if we in- emphasize on the development aid that is going for education to Pakistan, if it is put to the right use, then 40 years from now, we will see the mindsets change. It won't happen overnight. But we have to have a starting point and we have to hold Pakistan accountable on uh, those commitments that they that they give on the aid that is received uh, by Pakistan from the UK as well as from other international uh, forums. I mean, there is a program to remove, for example, teaching of hate from textbooks in Pakistan at this time. Uh, but the person, uh, one of the people engaged in it was telling me that, uh, you know, this is a kind of never-ending task because as soon as they've removed uh, material from some textbooks, they, the same material or different material appears in other textbooks. Hmm. And so, you know, the whole thing goes on. Yeah. And for those who aren't in Pakistan listening, maybe Christians in other countries and here in the UK in particular, if they're concerned about this situation uh, what are, are there any, is there anything they can do uh, of, of course pray for their brothers and sisters um, but is there anything practical else that, that you would encourage christians around the world outside pakistan to do yes i think prayer is uh, very important but pray in a focused way don't just pray generally for the persecuted church or whatever but pray for particular things particular cases particular people um, not just the well-known ones, uh, but find out uh, who are those uh, people who need um, our prayers. And so even in churches, I think when uh, those who are doing the prayers in churches, they should um, make sure that they have informed themselves about particular uh, situations. And that's that's true of every country. Uh, secondly, advocacy. I think we are in a very good position here in the in the United Kingdom. There are many other countries like that, where we can be advocates for people who have no voice themselves, um, to make sure that voice is heard. That is what changed the situation with Sia Bibi uh, when she was um, being being held in prison for so many years. And we shouldn't underestimate the the power of advocacy by ordinary people with their MPs, with the embassies, with international bodies, and so on. Uh, give to people in need. Um, I remember Asia Bibi's uh, family telling me that, you know, the media are very interested in coming and talking about their case, but their ordinary needs about money needed to visit her in prison, money for educational uh, necessities. I mean, nobody really was thinking about that. So that shouldn't happen. So, I mean, you know, giving in a focused way as well, and there are some very good agencies in this country um, to whom we can give. Um, And then um, going, if that is possible. 
I mean, there's nothing to beat going to visit people in their situation, expressing solidarity with them in that way. And Simon, would you echo what Monsignor Michael is encouraging us to do? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we are in a, uh, you know, uh, UK is in a very uh, strategic position to to advocate and hold the uh, state of Pakistan accountable for the aid that it gives and to ensure that it does not only go on quantitative measures on education, but qualitative measures on education. We have to look at that side to it. And I think international advocacy, I would really say that, you know, we have to understand the context and the complexity that Pakistan is now faced with. And we have to give practical solutions. You know, a flying statement of repealing the blasphemy laws is is not practical at all at the moment. So we have to find something that, you know, we take baby steps to try and gradually remove and uh, and go towards the ultimate realization of that goal. But we've got to take practical steps in, in, in doing that. And the last point I would just say, you know, one of our gurus in Pakistan from the human rights um, uh, arena, who was uh, someone we looked up to, the late Mr. Ayer Rahman, he used to say that if there is economic empowerment in the country, if people have got enough to feed their children, they won't have time to look at all these issues and, and you know, to, to, to um, uh, seek refuge in religion and, and then use it for these purposes so there is a there is an economic element also that uh, is important to help the country in coping with the challenges that it faces so we there, we need to work on capacity building of the institutions of the state that can be strengthened to be able to uphold the rule of law in the country Excellent. Well, thank you both, Simon and Monsignor Michael, for the conversation and discussion and for your expertise. Uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but that was a really helpful discussion. And I hope um, that has elucidated some of the important issues in, for, for believers and other minorities in Pakistan. So, um, yeah, I would encourage everyone listening to please do uh, pray, do uh, advocate, to speak up where you can. Um, and thank you again, Simon and Michael, for coming on and, and speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 